The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You're wondering who we are, why we have done this, how it has come that I stand before you, the image of a being from so long ago. Life evolved in my planet before all others in this part of the galaxy. We left our world, explored the stars, and found none like ourselves. Our civilization thrived for ages. But what is the life of one race compared to the vast stretches of cosmic time? We knew that one day we would be gone, that nothing of us would survive. So we left you. Our scientists seeded the primordial oceans of many worlds where life was in its infancy. The seed codes directed your evolution toward a physical form resembling ours. This body you see before you, which is of course shaped as yours is shaped, for you are the end result. The seed codes also contain this message, which was scattered in fragments on many different worlds. It was our hope that you would have to come together in fellowship and companionship to hear this message. And if you can see and hear me, our hope has been fulfilled. You are a monument, not to our greatness, but to our existence. London. It's Thursday, February 12th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. And we'll be with you from now till noon. It's not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show on this blustery winter morning in London. And I will be discussing in the last half of the show some capital schisms on capitalism, if you like that little phrase there, Robert, speaking about some of the misnomers that people always get into about capitalism, all the minor misunderstandings that lead to a big misunderstanding. And I think it comes from all sides, both pro-capitalists and anti-capitalists. Well, I think that's why Ayn Rand titled her book Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. Oh, you hit the nail right on the head there. And as I understand it, in the second quarter of the show, you're planning to talk about some vacuous notions on vaccinations. Is that one way of wording it? (laughs) You and your metzism. Yes, yes, indeed. Starting off with some astrologic, I guess. Astro, oh dear Bob. <laughs> I, I had, to, had to think of some titles for these things. I wish you had better things to do. Anyway, <laughs> yes, you're right. Um, from time to time on this program, both you and I wax a little fanciful and talk about the potential for life on other worlds and how many planets can fit on the end of a pin. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like it's one of those times. So for the first quarter of hour, I'll talk about something like that. That opening clip was from Star Trek The Next Generation, and it's quite imaginative, and um, part of me wishes that such a fiction would be true. That is, that the galaxy was teeming with life, not only life, but intelligent life. And it could just be possible that such life generated from a precursor race. And more interesting to imagine would be that ours would be that progenitor race. 
Adding fuel to such flights of imagination are the recent discoveries by the Kepler Space-Based Telescope, which has been cataloging exoplanets since 2009, and to date has confirmed approximately 1,500 in its narrow field of view. Now, if you recall, Bob, we did a show on this a few years back, and at that time I mentioned that the number of confirmed planets was, I think, around 1,000. Now, Mm. of course, they've added to that considerably. Oh, yes. Also, a recent paper by uh, Timothy Bovaird, Charles uh, Lineweaver, and Stephen K. Jacobson entitled Using the Inclinations of Kepler Systems to Prioritize New Titius Bode-Based Exoplanet Predictions, and it's available free online from archive.org, has been the cause for some recent gasps considering its conclusion. And I've picked this up from the internet on Facebook. People were throwing this one around. But here's a bit from... uh, the paper's abstract, quote, We analyze a sample of multiple exoplanet systems which contain at least three transiting planets detected by the Kepler mission, what they call Kepler multiples. We use a generalized Titius-Bode relation to predict the periods of 228 additional planets in 151 of these Kepler multiples. These Titius-Bode-based predictions suggest that there are on average, now get this, around two planets in the habitable zone of each star, unquote. So, extrapolating from this, IO9, uh, which is an online sensationalist science news aggregator, came up, came up with this headline. A new calculation predicts hundreds of billions of Earth-like planets, and went on to say, quote, The prediction that our galaxy contains hundreds of billions of potentially habitable terrestrial exoplanets is jaw-dropping and most certainly worthy of discussion, unquote. So, let's discuss it. On show number, actually it was show number 201, Bob, available from our website, justratemedia.org, I estimated the number of habitable planets, based on Kepler data too, by the way, in the galaxy to be in simply the millions. Now, whether there's only a few million habitable Earth-like planets in our solar system, or 200 billion, seems to be a bit of a moot point. In, our, certainly in our solar system? Yeah. Uh, did I say solar yeah, system? Yeah, you mean in our... Oh, dear. What a, in what our a mistake. galaxy or whatever. Galaxy. It? I'm yeah. glad you pointed that yeah. out. Just with sake, I'm going to write that down. Here yeah. we go. Galaxy. <laughs> in our galaxy. I'm thinking, gee, where's the other one? i got to go visit. <laughs> Nevertheless, it's a trivial point whether it's millions or 200 billion. If there was proof of only one Earth-like planet beyond our solar system, it would fire up the imagination, and it has. And if there were proof that there were intelligent extraterrestrials, it would both excite and terrify at the same time. But the IO9 article takes quite a liberty, I think, in extrapolating from that paper to suggest hundreds of billions of Earth-like planets in our galaxy. First of all, the paper talks of planets in the habitable zones, um, not Earth-like planets planets in the habitable zones, rather, not Earth-like planets in the habitable zones. So, for IO9 to all of a sudden talk about Earth-like planets, assuming that any planet in a habitable zone is Earth-like, is incorrect. You could have a Jupiter in the habitable zone yeah, of a planet. There might not be any yeah. life as we know it of at all. Of course, yeah. There might be moons around a, a planet like that, mate. Also, and this might be a problem with the paper itself, Bode's Law, or Bode's Flaw, as it's sometimes called, is far from perfect. Now, I mentioned it, it uh, without explanation, uh, Titius Bode's Law, 
or rule as it's sometimes called without uh, basically saying what it is. So I better do that before we continue. In a nutshell, Titius and Bode saw that the seven planets that they, or six planets actually, that they could observe in their day, which I think was 1760 or 1779, somewhere around there, Mm -hmm followed a numerical progression along the following lines, and this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. One way to state Bode's law begins with the sequence 0, 3, 6, 12, 24, etc., in which each number after 3 is twice the previous one. To each number is added 4, and each result is divided by 10. Of the first seven answers, six of them closely approximate the distances from the sun expressed in astronomical units. I can hear some of you glazing over out there. But uh, basically what it means is the planets that we see in our solar system seem to fall along a mathematical progression, basically doubling distance as you get away from the sun. So it's apparent that Bode's law was derived from only one incomplete observation, that being our own solar system, an N of 1 for the scientists out there, minus Neptune and Pluto because... um, they didn't predict those, and, and they don't fall into the predictions, and that it has a few exceptions to make it work. It doesn't work for the number three in the sequence, and it failed to predict the orbit of Neptune. Um, they were off by about 30%. But other than those glaring flaws, it's fine as it goes. In fact, a 1998 paper by Hayes and Tremaine gave the rather subdued conclusion that the significance of Bode's, ro- Bode's rule is simply that stable planetary systems tend to be regularly spaced. Well, you know. That's that's what makes them stable. That's almost the definition of their stability, isn't it? Exactly. If they weren't regularly spaced, they'd be bumping into each other and perturbing their orbits, as it's called, and probably even flinging them out of the solar system. So now, to use this imperfect observation on incomplete Kepler data may be an interesting intellectual diversion, But it's far from being a valid tool to assist in predicting the number of planets occupying the habitable zone of all the stars in the galaxy. Further, the IO9 article implies that the planets are Earth-like, in that they're able to support life. But it fails to note that only about 10% of the galaxy's stars are of the type most amenable to life. That is, the G and the K-type dwarf stars, our Sun, by the way, is a G-type yellow dwarf. Most stars in the galaxy are red dwarfs, which have a particularly volatile surface and habitable zones quite close to these cooler stars. Life there would probably have a very difficult, if not impossible, time taking root due to the high levels of radiation from their red companion. It fails also to mention that the galaxy itself has a zone of habitability. Now, I bet you most people out there who are interested in this kind of minutia didn't know that. Just as a star has a zone of habitability, a Goldilocks zone, if you will, too close, and you're going to burn up too far away and water freezes. Everything's got to be just right. (laughs) Yes, just (laughs) right. I get that. the Goldilocks zone. I see where you went there, yes. (laughs) Stars too far out from the habitable zone of the galaxy lack the metallicity to create rocky planets. In other words, um, there's very little perturbations of these distant planets because most of the metallicity, the heavy elements that we have here in our solar system, when we're in the habitable zone, obviously, um, came about because of supernovae and novae, um, which would perturb the stars and then they make 
gaseous nebulas and then they'd co coalesce into planets and that would happen over a number of times over billions of years until the heavy elements were created and condensed into planets. Those far stars in the galaxy don't have that. Um, stars, that explains stars too, stars too far out. Also, stars too close to the center of the galaxy are subject to frequent supernovae and other disturbances, making life there less likely. So taking all these factors into account, Bob, I stand by my calculation from show number 201 that rather than hundreds of billions of Earth-like planets, our galaxy might only contain, Caldemage, several million. <laughs> but given that there might be several million of habitable planets in our galaxy instead of many billions, I am still in awe as to the potentiality of intelligent life existing somewhere other than in this studio. <laughs> With that, let's change topics, and uh, we're going to listen to a pen and teller in these two clips, talking about something that is getting a lot of news lately, and that is uh, vaccinations, measles outbreaks, and um, the anti-vaccine controversy. Let's give it a listen. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Vaccinations. <laughs> Kids love them, and why not? Over the past 70 years, vaccines have nearly wiped smallpox, polio, measles, and diphtheria off the face of the planet, saving countless lives in the process. But today, thanks in part to a shockingly absolutely wrong, possibly criminal, study falsely linking vaccines to a skyrocketing rate of autism, high-profile celebrities are joining legions of concerned parents in a rapidly growing anti-vaccination movement. I do think they, they're possibly dangerous. I believe that vaccines do cause autism. Right now, my plans are to never vaccinate my child. This whole vaccination controversy got started back in 1998, when The Lancet, a prestigious British medical journal, published what turned out to be absolutely wrong, possibly criminal, study falsely suggesting a possible link between the measles vaccine and autism. Almost overnight, England's vaccination rates dropped by double digits. The panic quickly spread to the U.S., and the anti-vaccination movement took off. If it's not vaccines, what is responsible for autism suddenly affecting 1 in 110 children? I mean, there is an epidemic of autism, isn't there? When people look at the, the rise in, uh, in autism, what they're really looking at is a rise in diagnoses. Autism's always been with us. It's just, it was either called something else, childhood schizophrenia, for instance. It could have been called childhood psychosis. In the case of something like Asperger's, which is your higher functioning forms, it could just be the weird kid in class. Before 1994, to be diagnosed as autistic, a child had to have a low IQ and be deeply withdrawn and nonverbal. But then researchers adopted the much broader definition, Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. And suddenly many children could technically be classified as autistic. We changed the definition to include more children, and now we act surprised that more children are included. Oops. If you look at other possible reasons why the numbers may be rising, uh, it also includes the fact that uh, because we have increased awareness, we're identifying individuals at a younger age. So you have to basically factor all these uh, things into place before you can actually say whether there's a true rise in the incidence, which is the number of new cases per year. 
Let's go back to bug nutty crazy world and assume you guys are right and vaccinations really are dangerous. Why then are doctors still recommending vaccines? The backbone of the pharmaceutical company are vaccines. Because it's not just in America. Those same companies are shipping vaccines all over the world. We ship millions of vials of it to Africa. And look, AIDS is rampant in Africa. Carl doesn't have an autistic child, but he's convinced that vaccines are part of a global medical conspiracy to keep us sick. Follow the money, follow the money, because that's what motivates these people. I believe that doctors don't become doctors to heal people. I think they become doctors to make money. I don't care what they say. That's the way I feel about it. So doctors are keeping us sick on purpose? How can they pull that off without us finding out? There's a lot going on, um, and we're being distracted. Football, basketball, American Music Awards. We knew the American Music Awards were a pharmaceutical plot. My face goes numb when I watch it. You name it, we're, it's, everything's a distraction to the truth. Careful, Carl! Your doctor might get so pissed at you spilling the truth that he gives you that shot that turns you gay. Where the hell are you people getting your information? Thank God for the internet. Thank God for the internet. People say, oh, you got that on the internet. That must be conspiracy stuff. No, it's just knowledge. Anyone can claim anything on the internet. This would not have happened 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, where you'd have to go to the library and do your research. You know, thank God for the internet. Otherwise, I wouldn't have found that Penn and Teller clip. There you go. <laughs> Actually, I do remember going to the library. Remember the days before the internet, Bob? I would take a special trip down to the public library. I'd be the only kid in there picking out books that I want and just sit there and read. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's the only way you, you could get research of any sort. And you'd oh, have yeah. someone there that could help you, too, usually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Penn and Teller, of course, have already covered most of the groundwork for what I would like to say about the anti-vaccination controversy. Mainly, that fears of vaccines causing autism are completely unfounded. Such beliefs are due to a single, since completely discredited, research paper linking the MMR vaccine to autism. What I found particularly interesting in the same thing I, I find interesting in most controversies, namely the willingness of people to find conspiracies around every corner and to shun human advancements in the face of overwhelming evidence. Back in the 40s and 50s, parents were overjoyed at the ability to protect their children from all sorts of crippling and fatal diseases. They just saw uh, the president of the United States, FDR, you know, contract and track polio. Mm -hmm. um, so it was rampant. They trusted the medical and scientific professionals and their trust was well placed because such a program of vaccination has all but eliminated once common diseases such as polio, measles, chickenpox, and rubella. It has eliminated altogether smallpox. But it seems that lurking in any population in an ever-increasing subset of people who reluctantly go along with the science until one scientist publishes one paper contrary to the accepted and proven norm. And they're quite willing to believe that one scientist in single paper and throw out all of the data and evidence from thousands of scientists whom they once relied on to tell them the truth. It's as if they find man's ability to control nature to be unnatural and secretly wish for it to fail. And when someone points out a flaw, they are relieved to know that they were right, that science is not infallible, and that there is an uncontrollable randomness to reality we all must respect. Man lands on the moon, but there are those still today who wish it to be faked, 
Technology gives us the world based on oil, which has benefited us like no other development. Yet, there are those who believe it'll spell our doom. The list is long of technological progress and scientific advancement that does not go hand in hand with the prognosticators of doom and destruction who wish for a world fit only for a family of Amish. Science, by its very nation, uh, nature, rather, is skeptical of itself. It's a, uh, it is the most rigorous, it's most rigorous in, in steps it takes to discover the nature of reality and to use it to advance our condition. Healthy skepticism and reasonable doubt are to be expected and necessary elements of progress, but people who are, for the most part, uneducated in the fields they attack are guilty of hanging on to a philosophy that holds that man is impotent against the universe, a philosophy that believes that man's mind is not capable of knowing the truth, of knowing the true nature of reality, and that the world we perceive is but a mere shadow on a cave wall, while the real universe is the great unknown beyond the mouth of the cave. It is the discredited, discredited philosophies of Plato and Immanuel Kant which guide these people who would sooner believe a single fraudulent scientist than 200 years of rigorous scientific evidence to the contrary. These same people trust that their cars will take them from home to work to play, but feel guilty with every mile they travel because they're burning fossil fuels, which are causing the climate to change. Again, their willingness to throw away the life-giving and sustaining benefits of fossil fuels and to live a life of deprivation is symptomatic of the, the death cult of the followers of Kant and Plato. They may not realize whose philosophies they follow. Almost none of them have read Plato or Kant, I bet on that. And they're, they are indoctrinated into their philosophies by the professional intellectuals who have pervaded our culture and more importantly, our schools, with their ideas. They may not know Plato, but they know God. They may not know Kant, but they know that man is impotent in the face of an unknowable universe because their teachers told them so. They may not have even heard of the critique of pure reason, but they critique it just the same. And so today we have a horde of people refusing to vaccinate their children, and as a result, those common childhood diseases we thought were on the way out are back again on the increase. There are people saying the vaccinations are a profit contrivance of big pharma, which means, of course, the pharmaceutical companies which research, develop, and create cures which have saved millions of lives is only curing them to make money. It's not uncommon for the detractors of vaccination or of any other scientific or technological advancement to be on the left of the political spectrum, although if it involves government, you can be sure to find members of the right chiming in with their conspiracy theories of their own. But instead of Big Pharma, they attack Big Brother. It's all a conspiracy by those with the money and those in power, folks. Don't believe the statistics on the millions of lives which have been saved. They must have been made up. It's a conspiracy. We can't trust corporations, and we can't trust government. Go the mantras. And as a result, children are going to get diseases they don't need, and some will die. Here's my take on vaccinations. Any parent must always weigh the pros and cons of any treatment to themselves or their children. Biology being what it is, there are always a percentage of the population of the billions who will react in a negative way to an otherwise safe treatment, 
which benefits billions with no ill effects. It is up to the parent to ask to know the risks of any medication, to assess those risks, and then act on the assessments of those risks. It's also up to the doctor to make sure that they know it too. If a parent feels that a one in a million chance of having a negative reaction to a vaccine is a risk that they're unwilling to take, then it's their right to refuse to either take the vaccine or have their children vaccinated. But they should also know that it is the right of others not to associate with either them or their children for fear of contracting a disease they are unwilling to guard against. There are consequences to the choices you make. And while you may not believe it's right for a school to impose a vaccination order on all of its pupils attending the school, uh, the parents who do believe in the efficacy of vaccinations may not believe that you can impose your chill, a child into their midst and thereby possibly expose their children to a communicable disease which is preventable. It's unfortunate that what muddies the water in the flow of information which a parent must know in order to make a decision to vaccinate or not is the intrusion of force by government into every aspect of that decision tree. The pharmaceutical companies are constrained by government controls and oversight by bureaucrats who may know nothing of what they oversee. The pharmaceutical companies also accept public funds for the research, and they lobby government to restrict competition into their fields. The government limits patents and drugs which dissuade research and development of new drugs. Doctors in this country are controlled and paid by the government and are subject to a myriad of unjust constraints which limits their interactions with patients and interferes with a normal patient-doctor interaction. So without sounding like I just joined the ranks of the anti-government crusaders, there is an element of coercion which must be taken into consideration when cons- anyone wishes to decide for themselves whether or not to be vaccinated or to vaccinate their children. But unlike many, I believe in the ability of man's mind to learn and to choose the correct course of action requiring, uh, required for a successful life. We can figure it out. Reality is knowable, even the reality of vaccination. So I leave it up to every parent to learn and to decide for themselves and for their children the proper course of action to take. The anti-vaccine side, uh, they, they like to, I, like, I say they, they like to cloak themselves in the respectability of science, you know, uh, but without really subjecting themselves to the harsh questioning that the scientists get. What I'm concerned about is that they're closed-minded. They, they refuse to look at the facts as they're generated or to look at the weaknesses of the studies that they quote because they've already fixed in their mind already what they perceive to be the truth and then go out to look for the documentation to support it. That's not the scientific method. It was shocking disregard for that scientific method that allowed The Lancet to publish the 1998 study that started this whole controversy in the first place. And in early 2010, The Lancet was forced to retract that study after a British medical panel found its main author, Dr. Andrew Wakefield, guilty of gross misconduct. It turns out that Wakefield was being paid by a law firm that was looking to sue the manufacturer of the measles vaccine. And because of that, claim results that he didn't actually get. Along the way, Wakefield performed unnecessary and invasive tests on children without proper approval. He even joked about paying children money to take blood tests at a birthday party. The editor of The Lancet said it was utterly clear without any ambiguity at all the statements of the paper were utterly false. I feel I was deceived. The evidence that started the whole vaccines and autism thing is absolutely false. End of discussion, right? 
No! Well, Jenny McCarthy has taken up the cause. Jenny said her son Evan became autistic after getting the MMR vaccine in 2005. She also heavily endorses injecting Botox into your face, one of the more potent toxins known to man. So in Jenny world, Botox good, vaccines bad. Today, I am a mom of a child who had autism, who has a voice that is willing to shake the ground of those responsible until all of our children are safe from harm. You heard her say, had autism. Jenny says he's well now. She says he took probiotics, threw up and pooped out a bunch of yeast, and now he's fine. She's been called the face of, of, of mothers with autism. And I think that what she does is she gives a voice to the tens of thousands of parents who haven't been listened to. Boy, Dr. Gordon sure likes Jenny McCarthy. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact he's her pediatrician. Dr. Gordon's support has helped to legitimize McCarthy's amazing transformation from Playboy model to public health expert. That's given her a platform from which to broadcast her anti-vaccination scare tactics and usher in a new kind of McCarthyism. Look at it. I feel like my mind just made a baby. <laughs> and it's beautiful. It's not like human babies, which are loud and covered in goop. Holy crap, Sheldon. Did you just figure out a method for synthesizing a new, stable, super heavy element? Yo, did I? <laughs> well, that can't be right. No one's ever done that before. Except me, because I just did it. <laughs> Sheldon and his brain. Yeah. Sheldon and his brain. Yeah. Seriously, congratulations, Sheldon. Yeah, I read your paper online. That technique for creating a new heavy element is inspired. Oh, thank you. You believe it or not, I just learned a Chinese research team at the Hubei Institute for Nuclear Physics ran a test on a cyclotron, and the results were extremely promising. Sheldon, that's incredible. Yeah, I know. They called it the greatest thing since the Communist Party. <laughs> Although I'm pretty sure that the Communist Party made them say that. <laughs> like China. See, they know how to keep people in line. Oh, how, how true. Uh, China also knows, knows how to spread propaganda, and including in the field of science. And of course, much later in the Big Bang Theory TV series, we discovered that no such Chinese scientific ver verification actually took place at all. And so, um, you know, that might also explain why they call it the greatest thing, since uh, the, the Communist Party. But that's not where we're going with our analogy today, though it's perfectly consistent with my very abstract theme uh, about capitalism and what people think they know about capitalism. Science itself is a, is a field of study made possible by putting the principles of capitalism to use in the, in the property sense of maintaining a knowledge base that the government would not seek to conceal or destroy, and in the idea that it's the human mind that must be free in order for great strides or advancements in science to take place. 
My mind just made a baby, says Sheldon, after he figures out a method for synthesizing a stable super heavy element. We'll hear more about Sheldon's storyline in a little little later in our in our show, which is actually about capitalism and what we know or think we know about capitalism. We certainly talked a lot about it on this show, but I don't think I've ever taken the sort of abstract and backward approach to the topic that I want to do today. In a way, I'm conducting my own scientific exper- experiment. Um, but like. Like, like many scientific theories or discoveries, unless one is able to conceptualize or visualize what capitalism actually truly is, one will never be able to know how to determine who's in the know about it and who's not. But every time the issue of capitalism gets a public forum for discussion, the discovery of what capitalism truly is becomes a little more elusive. And that's exactly what seems to have happened at an event on the subject held here at Western University two Sundays ago. And that was when the Social Sciences Student Council hosted a new academic conference on that weekend, bringing in Conrad Black as the keynote speaker. And Jack Lichtfield, Triple um, SC president, said uh, that, the, th- that this year's edition was called Capitalism in Today's Society. says he chose the theme because it's one of the few that can really unite all 11 departments in the social science uh, faculty. Or as I would put it another way, if the theme was socialism in today's society, you'd have 11 different views on the subject, but just say the word capitalism, and they all hate it. The only thing that unites socialists is their mutual hatred of capitalism. There are so many different opinions, beliefs, and theories on capitalism, Sean Fry, Associate Vice President Academics with SSC said. It's really a great opportunity to really explore the whole spectrum from right to left. The conference, get this, featuring Maude Barlow, Jean-Philippe Vergnet, and Anton Alahar, uh, happened on January 24th. And of course, what I found interesting was uh, none of the n- news media covered any of the, the, the comments of those people. Not, not a word. You know, and they were the other participants. They only covered what Conrad Black said. Now, of course, what Fry referred to as different opinions, beliefs, and theories on capitalism, I think are really a whole bunch of different reasons for hating capitalism and to promote some non-capitalist theory as some hybrid form of capitalism, since there's only one true and clear definition of capitalism. And like you said earlier, Robert, Ayn Rand's non-fiction book of the same name, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, was her expression of that definition. And... Conrad was, of course, in London a few weeks ago on that Sunday right here at the university. And even when they called it capitalism in today's society, just to show you how sensitive I am to these things, already I'm seeing red. I can't even get past the title of the event's theme without lodging a red alert complaint. For me, saying capitalism in today's society is kind of a sneaky way for the left to avoid identifying their moral base and their favorite economic system while condemning the moral base of the identified system that they oppose, which is always capitalism. Ironically, the only moral system, economically speaking. Capitalism is a system in which all individuals are free to act and trade, but in which all such actions and trade must be voluntary and consensual. Because to say capitalism in today's society in the proper context would be to say capitalism in today's socialist society, And you just can't say that. Immediately, you'd be confronted with a contradiction. Capitalism and socialism, or any kind of centralized economic or social planning by government, are incompatible. 
Capitalism has no place in a socialist society. They mean the opposite things from each other. They cannot coexist. An honestly named pro or anti-capitalist event might have been called capitalism versus socialism, which is the better system, a lot like Debate 84. Remember that one? At, uh, With Peacock. Uh, yeah. Yes, or something along those lines. Because you can bet uh, they made a point of not calling it socialism in today's society because that would be kind of redundant and would not have left the socialists united. There are those who say that we live in a mixed economy. If understood as a mix of socialism and capitalism, this is completely incorrect. We live in a completely socialist economy in every sense of the word. By mixed economy, what we really mean is, in the real world, in, in the socialist world of ours, is a mix of free markets and controlled markets, not a mix of two opposite political systems, capitalism and socialism. In today's society, which, which market remains free and which market remains controlled is completely up to the government, in every sense of the word, and cannot even be counted upon as a matter of individual right. That wouldn't be capitalism, even if the politicians of the day chose to make all markets free. In stark contrast, under capitalism, a free market would be a matter of individual right, not to be violated either by other individuals, groups, or governments. And a controlled market or monopoly would simply not exist by government edict. Capitalism is the purposely misnamed by a socialist system that exists when the economic marketplace is free of coercion and every individual is free to choose both the products and providers of those products from anyone willing and able to produce and provide them. All relationships must be consensual. Government under capitalism is but a referee, not the market arbiter or a judge who gets to pick winners and losers in the marketplace or the competitive field. That's really all you can, you can say about capitalism in the political or economic sense. But how do you effectively justify capitalism to make it desirable and attractive as opposed to the promises made and offered under centralized state planning and various socialist systems? As Yaron Brooks so astutely observed on this very show, despite capitalism's unprecedented and indisputable record of success in bringing a higher and more desirable standard of living to the greatest number of people, capitalism is losing the political war being waged against it from all sides. Why is this? Well, I think there's a few main reasons. To start off with number one, because the advocates of various shades of socialism always argue their case from a moral ground, though an incorrect one, since it doesn't correspond to reality, but a moral ground nonetheless, usually one based on some form of forced altruism or sacrifice. And number two, because most advocates of capitalism do not offer a moral base for capital, capitalism, but only a pragmatic one that repeats what everybody already knows, that capitalism produces the most goods and the lowest prices for the most people. All of this is true, but it's certainly not a selling point given today's political retreat in the opposite direction towards the left. And the third reason, I think, is because the socialist side always morally condemns capitalism and capitalists as being selfish, greedy, and otherwise uninterested in their collectives. And the fourth reason is because most advocates of capitalism do not morally condemn the principles of their opponents, the use of force and the violation of consent. So you can see the problem. Both sides are, are the, the left is defending its side morally and, and, and attacking the right morally. The, the right is just sitting there and trying to make pragmatic arguments and basically accepting 
all the ideal ideals and basic tenets of the left. Life, liberty, and property are the three things protected by governments under a government committed to freedom and capitalism. Life, liberty, and property are the three things constantly violated and attacked by governments committed to controls and socialism. As government or economic policy, any form of altruism or sharing requires that the government initiate the use of force in the economy, thus violating a principle of consent, which is the crucial element in true moral behavior. A civilized society, as opposed to quote-unquote today's society, is one in which the use of force is forbidden, and that prohibition is enforced by government. Which brings me back to capitalism, which was originally described in a popular way by Adam Smith through his incredible visual of the invisible hand that bestowed the greatest benefits on the greatest number of people. Adam Smith gained a great notoriety and earned a lot of credit for his discovery and by popularizing his discovery to a great number of people. And while it's true that capitalism produces more for more people, when contrasted against a non-capitalist system as a justification for capitalism, the more is better argument doesn't really offer one. You know, I've always wondered what would happen if the whole world was capitalist and there were no forms of socialism, communism, or totalitarianism anywhere. I mean, one capitalist nation or region might very well underproduce another area for totally different reasons, unrelated to state intervention. Uh, so would that be a reason to abandon capitalism because they're not getting the same amount of goods as another area? Or looking at the other side of the more is better coin, if we could produce more cars using slave labor, would that be the kind of society you want to live in? Right, you know, even well, if, if it were possible, which it is not, of course. Well, from the conservative argument, and I, I, I attack the conservatives because they're the ones who are the capitalists, mm. so-called, without the moral base. If they are saying that capitalism works, and that's their only argument, then you just mentioned, well, what if slavery worked? That's precisely it, and that's how they leave them open. Yeah. And, and that's what all people have to just, the other side just has to demonstrate, you know. So my point is that you don't want to be defending the right system with the wrong reasons, because in the long term, that approach always loses. The other isms are artificial inventions and theories that have never proven themselves to work other than as Ponzi schemes because they don't coincide with reality. The use of physical force by some individuals against un other individuals is a fundamental requirement of such systems. But capitalism requires a discovery process, not invention. Capitalism works because it coincides with the laws of nature and of morality. What we need to discover and learn is what those laws and moral principles are, not just that more is better, or, or that it works at creating the greatest goods for the great, greatest number, or that it works in allocating resources most efficiently. All very interesting, but not really cause and effect. It is a misreading of effects that are materialistic, and of confusing those effects with causes that are philosophical and moral. And I think that's an easy mistake to make, and we'll see an analogy to that coming up right here. Let's see, what's next? Okay, here. This is the magic marker I was using when I made the discovery. <laughs> I don't think the Smithsonian's gonna want your marker. And that's why you're not on the list for my tree fort. Guess who's getting an article written about him in physics today? I'll give you a hint. You measured the diameter of his suspicious mole yesterday. Sheldon, I'm so proud of you. Yeah, well, you should be. My discovery is spreading like wildfire. Unlike my mole, which is holding steady at the size of a navy bean. 
what's next? This is the very copy of the Handbook of Chemistry and Physics in which I looked up the reaction rates of Mendelevium and... And what? No. No, 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 no. What's wrong? I've made a horrible mistake. What are you talking about? This table. It's in square centimeters. I read it as square meters. Do you know what that means? That Americans can't handle the metric system? <laughs> Amy, I was off by a factor of 10,000. But the Chinese team found the element. Yeah, well, they shouldn't have. My calculations were wrong. There must be some resonance between the elements I didn't know about. So you just got lucky? Sheldon Cooper does not get lucky. <laughs> you and me both, brother. The element was found because of you, and that's groundbreaking. Yeah, what matters is the greatest scientific achievement of my life is based on a blunder. Like, I'm not a genius. I'm a fraud. You know, Sheldon, in neuroscience, we're forever finding something in one part of the brain that we thought was someplace else. Oh, great. Now I'm worse than a fraud. I'm practically a biologist. <laughs> Oh, not you, Dr. Wu, you're fine. <laughs> I want you all to know that you have no reason to applaud me. My so-called breakthrough wasn't the result of my genius. It was nothing more than a boneheaded mistake. So please refrain from praising me for it in the future. Well, I don't understand, they didn't find the element? Oh no, they found the element. <laughs> no, no, stop it! I don't need to take this admiration from the likes of you people. I make them stop loving me. Invite them to live with us. The National Science Foundation wants to give me a substantial grant. Oh, that's a big deal. I know. When will this nightmare end? Hey, I get that you feel bad about all the attention, but still, what you did is amazing. We're really proud of you. I'm not. You're not? Sheldon, I've been thinking about it, and you're right. You don't deserve any credit. All you did was misread some numbers on a table. A very easy table, too. Honestly, I'm embarrassed for you. That's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Damn it, everyone's better at this than me. Congratulations, Dr. Fowler. You just made the fort. You know, even though he's the brunt of our laughter and ridicule, the Big Bang Theory's character Sheldon is perhaps the most moral person you might find among TV characters. His commitment to metaphysical reality, if not social reality, and to the proper process involved in the discovery of that reality is a higher value to him than the value of being praised and complimented, which would be a social value especially in light of his knowledge that he has not really earned it. And this is a consistency to his character throughout the series. When his girlfriend Amy agrees with him, you're right, you don't deserve any credit, he replies, that's the most romantic thing I've ever heard. It's right out of the fountainhead, Robert. It is. Uh, Howard Rourke and Dominique Francon. In fact, Ayn Rand might have regarded Sheldon's commitment to reality as being what she called romantic. Yes. Just in the same way. Absolutely. 
And just as Rourke would have, we know that Sheldon views his scientific discovery as being a product of the mind. My mind just made a baby, he said earlier in the, in the <laughs> earlier part of the show. Anything that is real has to be discovered since it exists in some way that has applicable re relevance to knowledge and action in the real world. If Sheldon's misdiscovery was about how and why capitalism works, he might have said, oh great, now I'm worse than a fraud, I'm practically an economist, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is pretty much how I feel about most people I see defending capitalism in a public forum, or at least as reported in the media, including, unfortunately, Conrad Black. Uh, January 26th, Free Press by Hank Danizowski, Capitalism, Cure for All Woes, Black insists. And in there, uh, we discover that uh, um, former Canadian media ma uh, Baron Conrad Black sang the praises of capitalism as the only system that can work. There's, there's the argument, right? It, that's, it's because it works. Yeah. Capitalism conforms to the universal human desire for more, he said adding that people really don't like to share, end quote. Now, at first, this report created an objection to Black's comment in me because it's been my experience that people do like to share. But sharing's a voluntary consensual action, whereas government forcing people to hand their earnings to others is just that, for spending. There's zero sharing of anything, despite how the government may split and distribute the loot. There's also no consent in the socialist eco economic equation of sharing. Of course, this being the free press, they left Black's sharing comment completely out of context, which thankfully the Western Gazette covered, quote, where they added, inasmuch as it means confiscating the property and wealth of others. And that's what Conrad Black actually said. Now his idea of not like people not liking to share makes sense. People don't like to be stolen from is what he was saying. B but, you know, that's probably one of the reasons that became one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. And, of course, last week we heard Ayn Rand discuss in detail why, sh why sharing is perfectly okay as long as one doesn't make it a duty or a standard of morality, or, I should add, government policy. And then he says, it's not capitalism that has failed, it's the imagination and determination of our leaders, he said. Which I think is a bit frightening to hear, as it suggests that our leaders should still be managing the economy. And under any such system, you still wouldn't have any kind of capitalism. But, you know, he had here another idea he came up with, too, and this is from some of the things that he thought of in terms of, in, in terms of what the Free Press reported. He's proposed an overhaul of government pension programs with benefits only for the needy, certainly a step in the right direction. A parallel private medical system in Canada to take pressure off the overtaxed public system. A move in the right direction, but not for the right reasons. We should have a, a completely <laughs> open <laughs> health care system. Uh, work programs for nonviolent offenders instead of prison, which is barbarous and hideously expensive. I think that's a great idea, but if used for productive work, you can expect tremendous opposition from unions and labor groups. They'll all argue that giving work to prisoners takes away jobs, etc. And, of course, abandoning the war on drugs, which he called a monstrous failure, and thinks all drugs should be legalized. And Conrad Black. Conrad Black, yes. That's amazing. A lot of people are saying that. And then the Western News reports Black sells... Uh, new Methods for Old System. This is by Eric Green in January 29th. Now, of course, capitalism's not an old system. It has yet to be achieved or realized. But the world's not moving in that direction because the enemies of capitalism, along with ill-informed and misguided defenders of capitalism, are working together to conceal just what capitalism is and what it isn't, you know? And so... Um, <clears throat> 
basically, everybody says, yeah, or, or rather Conrad Black says, yeah, it's, a, it's the ideal system for an economic society. And he says, capitalism is indeed, I suggest to you, the best system because it's the only one that conforms to the practically universal desire for more. So basically he's saying, you know, capitalism's good because we're all greedy, which isn't really the reason why it works. And here was the weird part. Here's a guy coming to talk about capitalism. What, is his, what does he want to do? He wants to establish a wealth tax that would be <laughs> self-eliminating as the percentage of people living in poverty decreased. That's pie-in-the-sky dreaming. Essentially, he suggested, those worth more than $5 million would be required to pay a 1% tax towards alleviating po poverty, but not to the government. The money would go to social assistance systems designed by those paying the tax. And this way, Black said, we can provide an incentive for the wealth, for the wealthy to help the less fortunate. I can't think of a more silly idea and more non-capitalistic. Well, I don't know. It's he basically make the rich pay. It's make the rich pay. It's the same old argument from the communists. However, if you wanted to get rid of income tax altogether, that would be the way to go, is increase that basic deduction to a point. I mean, he's, but he's, he's not talking about that. Again, what happens, as soon as you put in a, 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 a system where you have a guarantee of something, people are going to get onto it. It's, it's not going to make the poverty go away. And, you know, he says we should increase, decrease sales taxes on essential items and increase them on luxury items. But by luxury, you know, what does that mean? Non-essential, even a candy bar is a luxury item under that system, right? So it's not about being expensive, it's about being a non-essential, and I can see taxes going up there. And that's the problem, you know. Most of today's discussions about capitalism are based on false or irrelevant observations about it. And you know, the breakthrough in human relationships that later came to be known as capitalism wasn't because of the fact that it works, but because certain individuals and in government somewhere along in the old pre-capitalistic days in history came to understand, using their minds, that creating certain political conditions led to the betterment of the people who were the subjects of or citizens of the government. For the first time in history, governance replaced rule, and it became possible or, and it became impossible for the world not to notice how quickly this new idea led to the creation of personal wealth on a scale never before experienced. What we call capitalism is the economic result of the political and moral environment that made it possible to emerge. If that environment does not exist, namely freedom, then you do not and cannot have capitalism no matter how much economic competition may or may not exist at a particular time. I mean, even communist countries have market competition within the boundaries of their politically imposed prohibitions and restrictions, but they are in no way tilting towards capitalism as we hear so often in the popular media about communist socialist countries that find themselves reducing certain restrictions that they may place on trade or commerce. So, uh, you know, and haven't you noticed, too, that because it has to be discovered, capitalism exists in some way, that it's, it's applicable to the relevance of knowledge and action in the real world. And I've always noticed that people with a capitalist understanding are almost never surprised when some government program or state-sponsored social effort goes awry or simply is non-productive. But the socialists who promote their unreal theories are constantly surprised by their failures. And that's because they don't understand why their schemes fail or don't care to know about the cause and effect because all they want is the effect. Instead, they focus all of their time and efforts trying to blame their failures on capitalism and greedy capitalists. And that was among them, Conrad Black being among them. So bottom line on capitalism, 
You can't win the case for capitalism with pragmatic arguments or declarations of faith that it works. You have to make the moral case and bring that moral case to life by demonstrating how it profoundly affects everyone's daily life. And that's what Ayn Rand did through her novels. Freedom and capitalism must become a common value in society in order to exist, let alone work. Capitalism works because it is a moral system, not an economic one. That's it for today, and that's just my, my, my whole complaint about uh, capitalism. And so join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We will. Take care. To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright This is Science Friday. I am Ira Plato. My guest today is responsible for the discovery of the first stable super heavy element. Welcome, Dr. Sheldon Cooper. Thank you. Uh, the university made me come here. I didn't want to. Uh, big fan of the show. So I understand that you actually discovered this element by mistake. Yes. And some people in the science community are calling it the Wonder Blunder. Who? Give me their names. I bet it's Wallowitz. It's just such a fascinating story. Your calculations are way off, but they find the element anyway. It's like misreading a treasure map and still finding the treasure. Yeah, I don't need to sit here and take this Play-Doh. It's because of bullies like you. Every day, more and more Americans are making the switch to television. 